Hello, welcome to my podcast. My name is Kelly J. I have a fabulous guest for you today. Uh, he's actually been on my podcast before. He is a critical thinker in a sea of identikit, fearful opinions that we normally see on mainstream media. Uh, he is the editor of Spiked. He is, of course, Brendan O'Neill. This podcast and everything I do is all part of a massive pushback that is needed against a well-funded and well-connected campaign against women and against free speech. If you want to support, there are many ways you can do it. There's Patreon, PayPal, joining the Standing for Women membership, also liking, sharing and subscribing. But in the meantime, whilst you decide how you are going to participate in this fight back, here's my chat with the insightful Brendan O'Neill. So, hello Brendan, good afternoon. How lovely it is to see you. You too, always. Well, what an exciting time it's been since I spoke to you at the beginning of lockdown. Did you have any idea that we'd still be here almost a year later? No, I didn't, which makes me feel like a fool because when I look back, I think I probably should have predicted this. I think a lot of us should have predicted this, but the whole thing's been really shocking because at the beginning of lockdown, we were told that it was going to last three weeks, that it was all about flattening the curve. It wasn't about stopping COVID. It wasn't about making sure no one ever got it. It wasn't about anything like that. It was a short three-week lockdown to alleviate the pressure on the NHS, and then we'd all go back to normal. And somehow, out of that, we ended up in lockdown for almost a year, in and out of lockdown. Uh, it's no longer about flattening the curve. It's now about making sure no one ever gets infected. We talk about people being infected as if it's the end of the world, as if that's as if that is something a failure when we accepted uh, in March last year that people would get affected. So the whole thing has spun completely out of control and we've ended up in a pretty tyrannical situation. So I'm feeling quite depressed about lockdown at the moment. Yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. I think, it, I, think I looked at Brexit, I think we all looked at Brexit and thought, how terribly divisive. What on earth could be more divisive than Brexit? And then <laughs> the pandemic came along and it said, well, I think this could be more divisive than Brexit. It's funny because um, when the pandemic first came along and when it started to get quite serious in the UK, I thought to myself, you know, the one upside of this horrible event will be that people might pull together. And now that we face a serious challenge to the health of the nation, maybe we'll stop all the woke crap and stop all the bickering and stop talking about completely minor insignificant issues and identitarian stuff. I had this vision that all that stuff would fall by the wayside, we'd pull together as a proper society. Mm. We would work together as citizens rather than fighting against each other as kind of identity blocks. And on that, I was completely and utterly wrong because the other thing about 2020 was not only that it was the year of COVID, but it was the year that all that wokeness and division and identitarian conflict got worse and worse and worse. You know, the summer of BLM riots, um, the orgy of hysteria and self-flagellation that impacted on the institutions in this country. We had the British Museum, the British Library, the Natural History Museum, all expressing shame about the people who founded them. Uh, you know, all that stuff actually got worse. So 
the whole thing has been a really important lesson, I think, on how difficult it is to make predictions in a society that is is as unhinged as ours. So going into 2021, I don't want to sound too negative, but we are, I think, facing the worst of all worlds, because on the one hand, we still have the virus, we still have the lockdowns, we still have those uh, restrictions on civil liberty. We also have a renewed politics of identity with Biden and Harris taking control of the free world and um, people being purged from the internet if they hold the wrong views. So all the stuff that I've been complaining about and writing about for a long time is intensifying. And I think that's a bit of a concern. Mm. So is there any part of you that feels um, <laughs> feels uh, on top of the world because you've pretty much been right <laughs> as to where <laughs> this may have been going, if not the pace of it, but certainly the warning, the warnings that you've been issuing in spite uh, and in your other pieces of writing have been very much about this place that we are rapidly heading towards. Yeah, I think Spike has been right. Spike's been uh, talking about this stuff for a long time. And the thing that uh, I think we've been most correct about is how dangerous identity politics is because uh, we've written about this for a long time now, years and years and years. And people would often say, oh, why are you obsessed with this, you know, stupid campus culture? No one outside of universities takes this stuff seriously. It's, it's a minor issue. It's not important. And in fact, what's happened over the past year is all that stuff from uh, the campus crazies has exploded into the real world. Uh, cancel culture has exploded into the real world. It's now a, a central part of political life. Um, identity politics is no longer just the concern of some 22-year-old student union officer. It's become uh, the lifeblood of Western politics. And if you think about someone like Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris is going to be the most powerful woman in the world shortly and possibly the most powerful person in the world, given how frail Joe Biden is. Um, and this is a woman who has her pronouns in her Twitter biography. So this is the stage we've reached, the kind of stupid stuff that was said and done by extreme identitarians three or four years ago is now being said and done by the people who run the world. So I think that the shift of that political culture from uh, the university sphere into the political sphere, the media sphere and the public sphere, that's been the most significant development. And, and that's the thing we really need to talk about and challenge. Mm. I think I'd have more respect for Harris if she was moderately woke even a few years ago. She is most famous for putting people in prison, especially black men. Uh, she did a huge amount uh, to incarcerate black males in America, mm. um, as did many others in the democratic establishment. Very few people want to talk about that, but you know their criminal justice policies have been devastating for black communities. And that's something I think it's worth um, bearing in mind as these people pose as woke and pose as enlightened. I think um, with Kamala Harris, I can't work out if it's an act or if it's real. Now, my instinct is that she's acting um, she's pretending to be woke because it's the thing you do right now. It's how you win the support of influential millennials and influential people in the media. You know, you, you change your Twitter biography, you pander to the new politics of race, you pander to the politics of transgenderism. That's how you win brownie points and that's how you become a more influential, more powerful person. So maybe she's doing it cynically. Um, but I also 
think that at some point she will buy into this because I think what she and Joe Biden will realize is that identity politics is actually a new form of power. It's not radical, uh, as people like you and me are well aware of. It's not progressive. It's a new form of power. It's the way in which um, the authorities can divide and rule. It's the way in which they can uh, divide black people from white people, um, men from women, have greater control over us in the workplace and other spheres of life. This is why corporations absolutely love the politics of identity. That's another thing we discovered in 2020. You had all these huge corporations issuing statements about how horrible white supremacy is and how they're going to do everything they can to challenge white privilege in the workplace. There were numerous workplaces in the US which started doing essentially um, brainwashing classes with their staff, telling their white members of staff that they were privileged, that they were racist, that they needed to correct their, their mm -hmm. thoughts and self-flagellate for all the sins of history. You know, we had capitalist elites snapping up copies of uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, which is all about this nonsense. And I think what they instinctively recognize is that identitarianism is a useful tool for controlling ordinary people. So I have a feeling that Harris and Biden, even if at the moment they're kind of acting, I think they will warm to this politics as a new form of political authority. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I, if only I knew that you just had to write a book that says, I'm not racist, but, and you could make an absolute, I would have done it myself. Uh, there's, it, there's something quite, I think there's something really, uh, perfect about the book White Fragility written by a white woman about just going around saying yes I am racist and she's made an absolute packet uh, I think that's quite <laughs> it's quite it's quite a perfect sort of this is what 2020 was about um, but with Biden uh, in particular he's going to apparently in his first hundred days he is going to wipe out women's rights and uh, Harris will be standing by him and I still know people who say that they are proud to have voted Trump. And that will be people on my side of this sort of whole uh, trans debate. I find it quite incredible. Do you think he'll stay the full term? Do you think he'll be fit to, to have I can't see it. Um, you know, I don't want to be ageist. I think, you know, one of the lessons of the past few decades is that older people are capable of working for longer than we had previously thought and they can be incredibly productive members of society. So I don't want to be ageist or anything, but he is becoming forgetful. He is, he does forget things. He does stutter on his words. He does look confused sometimes. Uh, I'm not sure that someone of his age uh, and his um, mental capacity will be entirely uh, capable of organizing America and, and uh, large parts of the world. He's going to be the most powerful man in the world. And I think that's gonna be a huge burden for him. So whether he'll last the first time, I think, it, I think he might make the first term, but a second term in my mind would be simply impossible. But, you know, it's a cliche now to say that Kamala Harris will be the power behind the throne, but I really do think she will be. And, it, that in itself is very cynical because when she ran to be the Democratic presidential candidate, um, she was not very popular with voters and she was particularly not popular with um, black voters and women voters. And what that really demonstrated is these attempts by the Democrats to appeal 
to certain constituencies, that often doesn't work particularly mm. well. And, uh, you know, most working people in America, regardless of their background, are more interested in politicians who are going to actually do something for them in terms of improving their living standards, providing them with jobs, secure housing, healthcare. They're not interested in all this stuff about how socially aware a politician claims to be. So I think the tension that will emerge in, in relation to Kamala Harris will be the tension between her desire to pose as this super woke global politician and ordinary Americans' desire for a better standard of living, which I don't think she or Biden will be able to provide. Yeah, it's so interesting the way people have been framing all the arguments, and I, I struggle not to sound like a Trump supporter because <laughs> there's so much misinformation. You know, somebody, somebody recently said to me about the, the number of black men killed under, uh, you know, when Trump was in power. And I said, oh, okay, so what were the stats in the four years before? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I said, well, how do you know it's worse? I mean, they might well be right. Maybe there was a, um, a, a massive epidemic of uh, men being shot by the police during the Trump era, but I don't think so. And it's just this constant people just regurgitating um, dishonest and misinformation. It's, it's peculiar. It is peculiar and it's really not conducive to honest, reasoned public discussion. And it's really frustrating because anyone who raises these points, as you say, will instantly be called a Trump supporter. And, and given the events of recent days, that's apparently the worst thing you could be right now. But the truth of the matter is on, on, num on a number of issues um, where the left railed against Trump for doing terrible things, they failed to rail against Barack Obama for doing very, very similar things. So, for example, there was that huge fuss about Trump um, separating families at the Mexico border, putting people inside jails, uh, prison cells while they were being um, before they could be sent back to Mexico. Uh, he was accused of deporting people unjustly. But everyone seems to have forgotten that Barack Obama was referred to as the deporter in chief because he he deported vast numbers of people, vast numbers, more than any other president before him, not only to Latin America, but also to countries like Haiti and other places as well. He threw out huge numbers of people, but people just overlook that because of Barack Obama's a nice person, he's an attractive person, he says the right things. And so they don't look into what he actually did or what he stood for. Then there's the question of military interference overseas. You know, the fact of the matter is Trump is the first American president in decades not to start a new war. Um, he tried to stop some of the wars America is involved in, uh, whereas Obama dropped vast numbers of bombs on at least seven countries, um, more bombs than presidents before him had done. Uh, and again, that's glossed over. So I, the thing about Trump at the moment, there is a real atmosphere of hysteria around Trump. The only thing you're allowed to say about him is that he is the worst person in the world. He's the new Hitler, and he is unquestionably the worst president America has ever had. If you say anything else at all, if you say, actually, he wasn't as destructive overseas as Barack Obama was, actually he didn't deport as many people as Barack Obama did. If you say anything like that, even though they are factually correct, you will be shot down as a Trump apologist. So the thing I'm worried about right now, as we have this transition of power in America, is how difficult it has become 
to have an honest discussion about what Trump did and, and an honest discussion about what Trumpism represented and why people were willing to vote for him. I mean, it, the, the peculiar thing is, while Black Lives Matter was marching and everybody was saying how terrible Trump was and, and how racist he was, uh, clearly if you bomb brown civilians abroad, uh, that's not really, that's nothing to do with race. There's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That is a, um, you know, a good act for a, a, a good American. But as soon as you talk about the historic, so not not the not the violence and the killings ten years ago, but if you talk about sort of three hundred years ago, then then obviously we we must all self-flagellate and everyone must take a knee. Uh, it is quite extraordinary, and obviously we have human trafficking uh, like never before throughout the world and enslaved people, but they don't matter either. You know, when you've got Lewis Hamilton racing on circuits built by uh, slaves. Um, and then talking about slavery, it, you just think, come on, some of us know. It's, uh, I, I, I think the Black Lives Matter stuff is just completely bizarre. And it's so frustrating because I have never met anyone in my life who doesn't agree with the statement Black Lives Matter. Uh, I, maybe I'm in a privileged position of never having met an actual racist, but I've never met anyone who doesn't agree that Black Lives Matter and that they matter as much as any other kind of life. Uh, that's always been my experience. People share that opinion very strongly, but people have a problem with the organization called Black Lives Matter. And they have a problem with that organization for pretty good reason, I think. They have some eccentric views. Um, they're a bit anti-family, they're anti-police. Uh, they want to destroy capitalism and various other things. Um, you know, they, they do lots of work in relation to transgenderism, you know, black trans lives matter as well is another uh, movement that sprung up. And people have an ideological discomfort with those kinds of points of view and it's perfectly legitimate to push back against that. The other thing Black Lives Matter does I think and not just Black Lives Matter but the broader identitarian movement which is why I find it so uh, concerning is I think it actually rehabilitates racial thinking. That's that's why I am opposed to it. You know the great victories in American politics over the past 50 years from the civil rights movement onwards, they were not smooth victories and there are still problems of discrimination in the United States, but great leaps forward were made in terms of moving away from racial thinking, moving away from racial categorization and towards a society which was largely uh, willing to judge people on the basis of their character, what they could contribute to society rather than on whether they were black or white or something else. All of that, I think, is being undone right now. It's been undone by people like Black Lives Matter, by Robin DiAngelo and the obsession with white fragility, by this new identitarian movement, which Biden and Harris support, which says that white people will never understand black people, um, black people are perennial victims, white people are inherently racist. You know, the other day, Joe Biden said, that when it comes to the pandemic recovery, um, priority will be given to ethnic minority owned businesses, black owned businesses, Native American owned businesses and small businesses owned by women. Um, and then once they've been sorted out, pandemic support will be given to other businesses, presumably those owned by white males. That is just 
racist. That is a racialized form of politics, which um, gives priority to groups of people on the basis of the color of their skin. Now, that to me is just shockingly and alarmingly divisive. And that's the problem I have with the identity stuff, which has really exploded over the past year, is that it actually takes us backward. It takes us back to a world where people and businesses were judged on the racial makeup of uh, on their racial makeup rather than on whether they what they needed whether they were a good person what they could do for society so i find it all incredibly regressive yeah i i mean i just i just think about the people that thought trump was their man and then they watch him get elected and then they watch um effort after effort to impeach him to get rid of him to sort of say that the the election was a fraud weirdly, um, that apparently was a, an okay thing to say back then. Um, and then at the end of his term, they watch him be persecuted. I mean, I'm putting myself in their shoes here. <clears throat> and then the first thing that Biden does is say, well, all of you people that just lost your man, you're going to be at the back of the queue. I mean, I, I just, what does, what does anyone think is going to happen? Have they never read even an ounce of history? I think they're storing up so much conflict and tension for the future and they have no idea what they're doing. And I think, um, you know, it's so striking that the, what's happened in the, over the past couple of weeks, especially since the Capitol Hill riot, you know, there's this idea that Trump is just the great unspeakable politician. Anyone who ever supported him or voted for him is the scum of the earth. And you all have to be expelled from political society, polite society. I mean, the climate of hysteria at the moment is out of control. I say this as someone who thinks the breaching of the Capitol was really repugnant because this was a mob that was trying to prevent a democratic vote from being enacted. It, it, it actually, to me, it felt very familiar because I have seen tens of thousands of middle-class Guardian readers gathering in large mobs outside the House of Commons over the past four and a half years demanding that politicians refuse to enact the largest democratic vote in the history of this country, which is the vote for Brexit. So when I saw the mob at Capitol Hill trying to prevent a transition of power, I thought, oh yeah, I've seen that here in the UK where people try to prevent a transition of power from EU membership to non-EU membership. So all those chattering class twats at the Guardian, I'm afraid, they really do have to get off their high horse because they've already done what those people did except they did it more peacefully and they didn't storm into the commons. Um, but I think we can't overlook why people voted for Trump. They didn't vote for Trump because they're racist idiots. Um, many, a great many of them had voted for Barack Obama. They didn't vote for Trump because they think he's the most perfect politician of all time. They didn't vote for Trump for so he would build the wall. I mean, that that was a minor issue at the end of it and no one even spoke about it towards the end of his presidency. They voted for Trump because the mainstream political establishment, especially as represented by people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, um, had ignored them and treated them like trash for years and years. Hillary called them deplorables, uh, Barack Obama called them um, scared people who cling to their Bibles and their guns. Their way of life was looked down upon. They were sneered at if they'd failed to speak in exactly the correct politically correct language on any sort of issue. They were written off as 
racist and transphobic and Islamophobic. Everything they believe in and everything they desire was just um, trashed as, as stupid and vulgar and ugly. That's why they turned to Trump. Trump was a politician who actually visited them. He held huge rallies in various parts of America that Hillary Clinton didn't even bother to visit. He engaged with people, he, he took them seriously, and he didn't treat them like trash. That made a big difference. And I think in the current moment, even though what I, uh, even though I think what Trump has done over the past few weeks is really bad, you should never try to block the enactment of a democratic vote. That's really bad, but we can't allow that to retrospectively rewrite history and to cloud over the fact that many people voted for him because the political establishment was rotten. And the same political establishment is now coming back into power. And in my view, it's as rotten now as it was back then. So this is not gonna fix the problems facing America or the rest of the world. Now, uh, I think it could go two ways. I think either um, it will get so terribly woke and everyone will go along with it, or what Biden and Harris will do is they will take away Obviously, what everyone did with Trump, it didn't really matter what he did. They were just focused on him as a person. And so they spent most of their time absolutely laying into him as a person or what his wife did with the gardens and all of these really silly, insignificant things. Didn't talk about policy. And I'm sure there must have been a lot to criticize as well as a champion of all the things he did. So now that we don't have him we might be able to focus on policies because let's face it, nobody's really gonna be focusing on Biden. He's got no charisma whatsoever. So it will either show up everything that's going on and people will see it for what it is and actually see what's going on, or it's just gonna get so bad and then it will just explode. That's, that's the question. I, I agree with you. One of those things is going to happen and it's hard to tell at the moment which one, but you know, the reason I, I've never been a, a supporter of Trump, I've been critical of almost everything he's done, um, uh, but I've always tried to understand why people voted for him. And the problem I have with the current anti-Trump hysteria, and it really is hysteria because the protesters are being referred to as domestic terrorists. The, the breaching of the Capitol is being compared to 9-11. I mean, Nick Cohen at The Observer compared it to 9-11. No. Um, it's crazy. Trump, uh, Trump is being referred to as the bin Laden of this movement. Lots of people are saying that no one who, everyone who worked for Trump must never be allowed to work again, which is a form of blacklisting. There, are, This is a McCarthyite blacklist of anyone who was linked with Trump. Um, and people want to bring in all sorts of laws to control what you can say online, what you can say at public protests. I mean, this is scary stuff. And what I think this represents is the revenge of the technocrats. You know, they, they got kicked out of power in America four and a half years ago. Um, they got uh, defeated in the United Kingdom with a vote for Brexit. Um, you know, the technocratic, the middle class technocratic elites are angry because what they view as the stupid, vulgar, uneducated plebs dare to vote against them. And I think on the back of Trump's defeat, they are going to wreak their vengeance on public life. That's what we're seeing in the United States. We're seeing a hysterical clampdown on not simply Trump, but on Trumpism and populism. 
Um, so that's the shift that I think is going to happen. And that's going to intensify over the next few months. We're going to see an intense effort by the kind of old elites, the technocratic elites, the managerial elites, um, you know, represented by the European Union, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. Those kinds of people are going to become emboldened by the transition in the United States. They're going to become emboldened to uh, demonize populist movements, demonize certain forms of speech, even demonize public protest as, as a form of violence. And that's going to happen. Wokeness is going to intensify. Identity politics is going to be put front and center in American life, as we've already seen with Joe Biden's promised pandemic response. And I think that will get worse and worse, but there will come a breaking point. There will come a point at which people will say, we voted Trump to be a corrective to all of this stuff. So now we need a new corrective. And I think that kind of movement at some point will emerge. Yeah, and it won't be a nice surprise, will it? So, you know, everybody was like, Trump, oh, he's so great. He's so rich. He's so great. And they were like, oh, he's going to run. Isn't that funny? Oh, it's not very funny anymore. He might win. Uh, oh, he's won. No, now he's the devil. Um, I think Chris Evans yesterday on the radio said, compared him to Hitler. I was like, come on now. You know, this is this is really shameful. I think I heard you talking about it on on something where you were saying that actually it said it does it just completely um, is it such an insult to people that genuinely went through 1930s Germany and all of the evil that spewed from it with it for uh, into the mid 40s. It's just I can't I can't imagine someone genuinely saying those words. Yeah, it's it's Holocaust relativism. And there's so much of that at the moment. You know, people are very casually using words like fascist and Nazi. And, you know, the breaching of the Capitol building has been compared to Kristallnacht. You know, Kristallnacht was a, a, a pogrom against the Jews in Nazi Germany in 1938, which lasted for two days led to 90 deaths and 30,000 people being put inside concentration camps. And more importantly, it was the starting point of the Holocaust. It's after that moment that Jews are no longer part of public life. They start to be rounded up. They start to be executed, exterminated. Um, to compare a stupid, rowdy, opportunistic protest with something like that is just obscene because what it does, it minimizes the crimes of history. It minimizes the crimes of um, the Nazi regime by comparing them to, you know, the stupidities of the Trump era or the stupidities of the Trump movement. These things are not comparable at all. So that constant exploitation of Holocaust metaphors and Holocaust language, I think, is, is a real insult to history. And it really makes it more difficult to understand what's going on today, because what's going on today is not mobs of fascists storming the citadels of power. It's actually something a bit more interesting than that and less deadly. It's ordinary people saying, we want political change. Um, and, and by ordinary people, I mean voters. I don't mean the mob who stormed the Capitol. I think they were a bunch of idiots and they deserve criminal punishment. They caused criminal damage. They should be punished for that. And some of them will be punished very severely. 
By ordinary people, I mean the 74 million people who voted for Trump in November as the second largest Democratic vote in the history of the American Republic. The largest is the vote that was won by Joe Biden. Or I mean the 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit. That's the largest vote in the history of the United Kingdom. You can't write off these millions of people. You can't write off uh, the tens of millions who still wanted Trump in power, even though they know that he's not a perfect politician. You can't write off the millions who want Britain to leave the European Union. So I think there's, there's still an unresolved tension in society. And the unresolved tension is between ordinary people who are demanding change, a, a more democratic form of politics, and people, uh, that, and people taking them seriously. A, a tension between those ordinary people and the elites who have become these almost feudalistic, um, aloof uh, sections of society who live in their castles and who talk about things that no one else is interested in, like gender fluidity and um, you know, categorizing everyone according to their racial heritage. They are so removed from the concerns of ordinary people and, and that tension will not be resolved by Biden-Harris. So it will blow up. When and how? I think that's the, that's the important question. Yeah, I, I uh, made comments about sort of parlor being shut down and, and uh, social media giants deciding that they can decide whether or not the president can speak. Now, whether he um, committed the crime of incitement I can't personally see it and I've read it and the incitement seems to be well it's what he didn't say that is the incitement um it's not what he did say and it's what he meant when he sort of said that he knew what those people would do and I think that would be very difficult to prove in a court of law however there are legal ramifications and methods to deal with that I really don't think that I want to live in a world where some men that um spent a long time in their basement coding that they're now grown-ups and they're deciding whether or not an elected a democratically elected president can use their platform and if they want to do that then they can be responsible for everything on their platforms it's uh, i think this is one of the biggest problems facing the world right now and that's not an exaggeration it's the extraordinary power that big tech has over public political life. I mean, it, it, no one in history has ever had this much power over freedom of speech. No one, no king, not the Vatican, uh, not even the people who led the Inquisition. They've never had so much global power over what people are allowed to say. It's, it's genuinely chilling. And um, the people cheering on uh, the banning of Trump or the suspension of all his accounts, I just think they are complete fools they're on a hiding to nothing because what they're doing they're supporting the right of unaccountable billionaires who none of us ever voted for none of us will ever have any engagement with whatsoever they're supporting their right to determine what people can say on the internet and on on social media and and social media is the new public square it's the it's the public square of the 21st century and these corporations and, and a tiny handful of individuals inside those corporations are controlling that public square and expelling people who have supposedly incorrect views. So the control they have is, is absolutely staggering. It's not only been aimed at presidents who supposedly incite violence, although I'm very 
I'm very skeptical that Trump incited violence. Um, but they also aim that censorship, um, as you will know from personal experience, they aim it at um, uh, feminists who criticize transgenderism, they aim it at um, conspiracy theorists who say stupid stuff, you know, like David Icke, for example. Um, they aim it at, uh, in Germany, it's been used against people who were critical of how many refugees Germany took in over the past few years. So it's been used to control political discussion across the board. And that, I think, should concern everyone. Uh, so, but, but, but the banning of Trump, I think, was a real crossing of the line because what we had here is the democratically elected leader of the free world, the sitting president of the United States, being censored by um, Silicon Valley billionaires. That is an intolerable interference in democratic politics. That is a, a grotesque clampdown on political discussion that is clearly in the public interest. It is clearly in the public interest for people to know what the president of the of America thinks and says. And for them to cut that off, I think it was just completely unacceptable. And going ahead into 2021, I think one of the most important battles will be fighting for the right of people to express themselves on the internet. Because if we don't have that, then political debate is gonna become even more difficult. Mm. It's especially galling, I think, regarding uh, the banning of Trump when you've got the, um... Is it the, the Brazilian leader is on? <laughs> um, uh, you've got the Chinese embassy uh, waxing lyrical about how everyone loves being in a, in a practical um, internment camp uh, or concentration camp, whatever you want to call it, where people are rumored to be sterilized. You've got all these genuinely frightful leaders allowed a platform, uh, but not one that's actually democratically elected is it's yeah. insane it's it's insane and the fact that twitter um permanently banned trump but left up a tweet from the chinese government which was essentially mocking uyghur women from xinjiang and saying uh you know they they benefited from being brainwashed in our camps i mean that's essentially what the chinese government was saying a really obscenely authoritarian and misogynistic tweet um, that stays up that's fine apparently that's in the public interest whereas Trump uh, gets taken down I mean the double standard is extraordinary but it shows how political this is mm. this is uh, you know this is big tech now essentially aligning itself with the technocratic establishment as represented by Biden and Harris and engaging in explicitly political acts of censorship. Now, my view, and I know it's not necessarily a popular view, my view is that nothing should be taken down um, unless it's explicitly illegal. So if someone goes online and gives someone's address and, and instructs people to go around and burn his house down, that's illegal, you're not allowed to do that. I wouldn't have a problem with taking that down. But when it comes to expressing an ideological point of view, whether it's an interesting one or a repugnant one, whether it's Donald Trump wanging on about the election being fraudulent or the Chinese government saying we were right to brainwash these people. I don't think any of that should be censored. It, people have a right to see this stuff, mm. to talk about it and to ridicule it and criticize it and push back against it. So censorship is never the answer. And I think, um, that double standard, I think, is, is really telling because what we know for sure now 
is that there are incredibly powerful people in Silicon Valley who have global reach and global power who now think they have the right to control what people are, should think and how people should speak. And they're now attacking actual democratically elected representatives. So we've moved into a new era and people shouldn't underestimate that. We've moved into a new era of capitalist control over democratic life. Mm. And that's something that's really got to be challenged. I mean, not to see uh, the Chinese, I think, uh, and China as a force that we should really be very, very careful with and be very fair warned that uh, it's it's not a force that cares about uh, people all over the world. Uh, I, I just, I do wonder whether there's something, I mean, oh, everything sounds like a, consp a conspiracy, but I do wonder what the power China has in, in all of this, to be quite honest, because I know Biden is gonna, is gonna go straight back and trade with China. Trump was a little bit of a, a little bit of a wall, uh, pardon the expression, uh, against China for America. I think um, what's I think the key thing that's going to happen as a consequence of the events of the past few days is that they are going to benefit authoritarian governments around the world because, and this is the thing that disturbs me most of all, actually, because what's happened is that the Western intellectual elites have accepted that it is okay to silence a politician, the most important politician in the world as it happens, it's acceptable to silence him because he was involved or he spoke at a, a, a protest that later on became violent. Now, think about the consequences that has for people around the world. Think about what that will mean for people in Hong Kong or China. The government there will say, listen, it's perfectly acceptable to censor you for organizing these rowdy protests and to take you off the internet. And we know it's acceptable because that's what liberals in the West do. Or Saudi Arabia or Egypt or all these other countries where people have used the internet to organize, to express themselves, to express dissent against the government, to organize public protests, especially in the case of Egypt they will now be told, listen, we're switching off the internet, we're, we're kicking you off, we can't have this, it's too dangerous. That's what Jack Dorsey says, that's what Mark Zuckerberg says, we're only doing what all these trendy Westerners do, so it's all fine. Mm. That is going to be one of the consequences of this. And I, in relation to China, I think China, authoritarian China, will be emboldened by this action. China has always... Um, protected itself from Western social media. It's, it's always um, been reluctant to allow Western social media into its country, um, probably because it predicted that it might be used against the Chinese government um, by people in Silicon Valley. Uh, but they have their own social media. They will happily kick people off for saying the wrong thing or for mm. organizing a protest. And when they do that, no one in the West will have a leg to stand on when it comes to criticizing them. No one, and if they do, China will rightly laugh in their face. So one consequence of what the Western elites are doing is that they are undermining their own ability to offer support to people around the world who are kicking back against authoritarian regimes. Um, and they've empowered those authoritarian regimes to take similar action 
and to justify it by referring to what um, Twitter and Facebook did to Trump. So this has global repercussions for liberty. And I really wish more liberals in the West would realize that. Mm, we are really giving up our, well, we can't even vote these people out, can we? That's the, that's the worst thing, but maybe free market will mean that everybody goes on gab for a bit and, oh, I've been on it myself. <laughs> I've been on it myself. Let's just say that um, misogyny is rife on the left and the right. So that's great. Um, look, aside from guns and the heavy artillery that the people in America that feel disenfranchised or not and voted for Trump and our very own Brexiteers, um, besides the guns, do you think what are the similarities or differences between the two groups? I think um, I think there are similarities between Trump voters, the good people who voted for Trump, of which there are millions and millions. There are similarities between Trump voters and Brexit voters in the sense that a lot of them come from so-called left behind communities. A lot of them are, you know, economically have been economically trounced, especially by globalization, which has been very beneficial to the elites and to middle class people and business people, but far less beneficial to working class people. Um, I think that's been a similar experience in both Britain and the US. And, uh, you know, both these sets of voters feel that the establishment just doesn't take them seriously. So I think there are similarities between people who voted for Trump and people who voted for Brexit. But when it comes to the Trump mob, when it comes to the mob of people who stormed the Capitol building, who I don't think are ordinary Trump voters, when it comes to the Trump mob, they have more in common with Remainers. And they have more in common with, and if you say this, Remainers go completely berserk. And I think the reason they go berserk is because at some level they know it's true. <laughs> and the reason they have more in common with Remainers is because they are trying to stop the enactment of a democratic vote. Um, they are engaged in conspiracy theories about this being a fraudulent vote. We also had conspiracy theories in the UK with Remainers telling us that Russia secretly made us all vote Brexit. It's all Russia's fault. Um, they are arguing that uh, this vote must be blocked. The mob who stormed Parliament actually physically wanted to block the transition of power from taking place. In the UK, legal methods, political methods and protests were used to try and physically block the enactment of the vote for Brexit. So this is what I find so infuriating about the British commentariat at the moment. They're all looking down their noses at this vulgar, vile, redneck mob who stormed the Capitol building. And I just want to grab them by the scruff of their neck and say, listen, that's you. That's what you've been doing politely uh, in nicer, with nicer words for the past four and a half years. Mm. Um, and I, I still think we haven't had a proper reckoning with that. I still think we haven't had a proper reckoning with the fact that significant sections of the political and media establishments try to void the votes of 17.4 million people. And this is why I think it will be very difficult for the Labour Party to recover because Labour's great mistake, of course, uh, in 2019, was to campaign for government, campaign in the election on a ticket of overthrowing the vote for Brexit and holding a second referendum. So what this means, they were knocking on the doors of working class Labour voters and saying to them, 
vote for us and we will overthrow your vote for Brexit. I mean, it was the most stupid suicidal campaign of recent times. And I think they will struggle to recover from that for a long time because people take their right to vote seriously. It's the only thing most people have. They don't have um, newspaper columns. They don't have access to political power. They don't have a seat in parliament or on a focus group. They don't have any of those things. They just have the right to vote and they take it seriously. So um, I think there still has to be a reckoning with what the British establishment tried to do to the vote for Brexit. And I think that reckoning can start by pointing out that those people, those Remainers, have a lot in common with the hardcore Trumpites who try to block democracy in the US. Mm. Well, you know, we clap for carers and apparently we, we really do adore our key workers. Well, I would imagine quite a lot of those people actually voted to leave. Uh, yeah. They're the low paid people that have seen their wages stagnate uh, in care homes, um, and across the building trade and they voted to leave and now apparently we appreciate them but at the same time we do <clears> like to look down our nose and think that we're nothing like them. Well it's like um, you know one of the most shocking events for me anyway of recent years was um, in 2018 that it was the 100th anniversary of um, the uh, representation of the People Act which gave um, some women the right to vote uh, and, and, and working class men the right to vote. So everyone was celebrating great step forward for democracy in the UK. And then as soon as those celebrations stopped, the same people went back to trying to thwart the vote for Brexit, which by the way, was voted for by 8 million women, millions of working class people, a third of ethnic minority voters as well, um, you know, huge swathes of people who we think it's great that these people have the vote. It's it's absolutely right that they have the vote. And we celebrated that for five minutes. And then we went back to trying to block the most important vote that many of these people have ever made. So the staggering hypocrisy was on full display. And it was even worse um, when Mike Lee, Mike Lee released a film about Peterloo, um, the Peterloo massacre. Uh, when um, working class people in Manchester were stabbed to death by um, uh, soldiers and policemen with bayonets, essentially, because they were marching for the right to vote. And everyone, all, the, all these middle class liberals went to the cinema, were weeping over Mike Lee's film about Peterloo. Then they came straight back out and carried on with their campaign to block the votes made by millions of working class people in the present. So, you know, that kind of it's it's almost beyond satire but because there's such a culture of conformism now and because especially in the media and mm. amongst the kind of people who will write satire comedians and bbc types and others because all of them are uniformly pro remain all of them are uniformly of the opinion that brexit's the worst thing that ever happened they they're not satirizing the most satirizable thing of recent times, which is the way in which certain sections of the uh, uh, liberal elites in this country have been behaving. So, yes, you're absolutely right. We cheer on our workers when they're slaving their guts out to keep this country, country safe. But when they exercise their democratic right to change the course of this country, then we sneer at them, we make fun of them, and we try to prevent them from having any power. So that's another thing I think that irritates ordinary people who feel like they're being 
taken for granted. Mm. I mean, satire's had a little bit of a rough ride, I think. I I can't, I, the whole trans thing not being, I mean, obviously we've got Andrew Doyle, um, but besides him, how can it not be a topic of most <laughs> comedians? I I just find it extraordinary. Even even my good um, billboard didn't make it onto a single news sort of panel comedy thing. And I think that was, I mean, obviously I love my billboard, <laughs> but um, I just think it was, that would, that would have been something surely that a few years before, after it was sort of all over the news, that would have been something that at least had a tiny quip of a comment somewhere, but they, d they don't talk about any of it. No, it's hard running in fake breasts. Come on. It's it's just ridiculous. I mean, if you can't satirize Eddie Izzard being praised by women's running UK <laughs> and, you know, and everyone saying, you know, go girl, do, do your running. Isn't she great? I mean, this is just, as I say, it's almost beyond satire, but it's such a rich vein of comedy apart from anything else. Um, you know, one comedian who does make transgender jokes is um, Ricky Gervais. And I saw Ricky Gervais live a couple of years ago. Um, huge, huge audience in London. And it was really striking because he did loads of horribly, horribly anti-Brexit jokes, which were all about how thick Brexit voters are. Um. And the audience was just splitting their sides they were rolling around in the aisles the only people who weren't laughing were me and the people I was there with because we were all Brexit voters so we were just um, horrified and then he went on to do a whole bunch of transgender jokes a lot of which focused on um, Caitlyn Jenner's testicles it was really really funny me and the people I was with were laughing our heads off and but notably much of the rest of the audience had gone a bit more quiet so I think even um, comedians like Ricky Gervais, who have an audience who probably don't mind being offended, I think at some point even they will recognize that this is a pretty difficult thing to do. It's difficult to satirize transgenderism or, or the cult of transgenderism because it's so entrenched as something you're not allowed to question. It's become mm -hmm. almost a religious um, sentiment that you're not allowed to blaspheme against and other aspects of identity politics too. And it's a real shame because I think one of the great weapons we could use against this regressive misogynistic politics is satire. That's often, you know, people faced with tyranny in the past have often battled against it, not only with political arguments, but also with satire. So we're actually missing a trick there. And there's got to be a new generation of comedians somewhere who are willing to put their necks on the line and make fun of this preposterous political ideolo ideology. I think we're at a time where actually the only people that could really satirize, satirize Black Lives Matter would be somebody who was actually black. Because anybody else, uh, you're just basically asking to not have a career, <laughs> aren't you? Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're right there when it comes to uh, that lunacy. But uh, I can't have you here and not talk about the amazing lockdown we're all enjoying and how great and buoyant the economy is right now. How are you feeling about being right about that? Oh, it's, it, you know, it's really, 
when the first lockdown happened, I mean, it's, it's, it seems so long ago now, back in March and April last year. And I remember being outraged at when we were told we had to stay home for three weeks. I remember thinking, this is the most outrageous thing they've ever asked us to do. I don't know how I'm going to cope. I'm going to be really bored. And I won't see anyone for a long time. And, and then that three weeks became three months. Then we had a second lockdown. Now we've got a third lockdown. I mean, it's just out of control. And what's frustrating is anyone who is skeptical of the lockdown, you will find yourself being accused of being uncaring. You want old people to die. You want vulnerable people to die. Uh, you don't care if COVID spreads. It, it, complete fallacy. Uh, every lockdown skeptic I know, anyway, thinks that COVID-19 is a pretty serious problem. There needs to be solutions there might even need to be some form of restrictions you know look at sweden sweden didn't have a lockdown but it did have a few restrictions there were rules and regulations but it was much freer so there will have to be some behavior changes for a period of time there will have to be uh, i think the idea of targeted protection was a better one where we would offer well-funded protection to vulnerable groups and elderly people um where they could be assisted to live separately from other people for a period of time. I think that was a good idea. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they don't listen to any of that. They just hear lockdown skepticism and immediately think that you want everyone to die. But the problem, of course, is that the lockdown has consequences too, and it has severe consequences. Economically, we're heading for the worst recession on record. Um, between two and three million people are going to lose their jobs. We haven't even seen that yet because people are still on furlough. When furlough ends, it's all going to fall apart. There will be mass unemployment. Um, people's mental health is suffering. People are disconnected from each other. Uh, people's sense of purpose in life is falling apart. Children's education has collapsed for an entire year. And that impacts on working class children far more than it does on middle-class children, every survey shows that. So we've sacrificed a, a generation of children's education, a year of children's education. We've sacrificed millions of jobs. Um, we've devastated the high street and we've caused a mental health crisis. So the question, the only question I ask is, was that worth it? Was that the right thing to do? And did we fail to measure the impact that lockdown was likely to have? And I just want a reasoned analytical discussion about that. That's what lockdown skepticism means to me. And I think at some point we will have to have this discussion and we'll have to have a reckoning with what happened in 2020 and whether it was the right thing to do. Mm. I mean, I look at this people that, so you're allowed to work if you're uh, making a movie or a television program, you're allowed to work uh, like that. Maybe if you own a market stall and you're an independent trader, then sometimes you're allowed the market, sometimes you're not. Your Christmas market's going to be cancelled. Nobody seems to have worked out a system where people can go to markets. They're even talking about closing them completely or people having to wear masks in the market. I just think it's... I'd. I don't agree uh, necessarily with the things I've heard about the Great Reset. I don't know enough about it to have really made up my mind, but I don't think it's on purpose, but it's easy to see why that would be something that everybody could really buy into. Yeah, well, I think the um, in terms of who's working and who's not working, 
there's a real class dynamic in the lockdown as well because you know we didn't really have a lockdown in any strict meaning of the word uh, huge numbers of people carried on working um dustbin men right imagine they stopped working this country would just be overrun by rats and rubbish uh, and it would be unlivable in a very short period of time so they had to carry on working supermarket workers had to carry on working bus drivers train drivers security guards and there are high levels of um, COVID infections among those groups of people, security guards, bus drivers, there are, that's, those kinds of professions have suffered quite a lot in relation to the virus. The people who could stay at home were, um, you know, people who have pretty comfortable jobs, journalists, um, of course, the scientific experts, um, lots of middle-class people, lots of teachers, teachers have actually agitated to stay at home. You know, these people who have relatively comfortable lives, some of them will live in fairly nice houses or nice flats, might even have access to a garden. You know, for them, lockdown was probably quite easy for a period of time because they could carry on working, they could carry on doing Zoom chats, or they were paid not to work and they know that they'll have a job to go back to afterwards. Public sector workers, for example, if they couldn't work, they were furloughed and, and they'll go back to work. There's no problem there. Um, you know, for them, it was okay, it was fine, but it was less fine for the people who either had to carry on working regardless because they are actually useful in society, like people who clean up our rubbish and drive us around and look after sick people, right? These are people who play an incredibly important role in society, so they couldn't stop. Um, or working class people who simply will lose their jobs, people who work in hospita hospitality, retail and so on. So the class divide is something that people are really reluctant to talk about. We know for a fact, because statistics show this, that the lockdown has had a far more negative impact on low earning families and it's had a far more negative impact on working class children's education. So it's measurable. We know this to be true. And that I think is incredibly unfair. And we have got to talk about whether it was the right thing to do to allow middle class people to stay at home for months on end while throwing many working class people to the wolves. Yeah. Well, in my own household, um, my kids got no contact from no no phone call or anything for months. Uh, they're both now at different schools. But my son's not doing his A-levels this year. He doesn't get to sit them. His school's not even bothering with mocks. So he has no idea where he is. And um, I've talked to um, Joe, your colleague from Spiked, who talks about the fact that boys do better in exams. So actually, boys are going to be more adversely affected by not having exams. Um, the whole thing, and it's not even, and it's not even attainment necessarily that I think is going to be the only crisis from kids not going to school. It's, well, there's two things. There's on a Zoom chat, you don't notice a child staring out of the window who has no idea what's going on in the classroom and doesn't understand it. That's one thing. But then also you don't get to make mistakes. You don't get to chat up the girl you fancy. Mm -hmm. You don't get to make a fool of yourself uh, in a social group where someone tells you you're being an idiot. You don't get to make all these sort of interpersonal uh, mistakes that you learn from when it's not catastrophic and you're not going to get fired. Mm. 
I think that's absolutely right. I mean, kids are missing out on so much from school, not just education, but socialization, growing up, learning how to navigate relationships and conflict and tensions, all those things that kids get from school. And, you know, for older kids in particular, 16 to 18, I guess, um, that's the period in which you start to become an adult, which can be a very difficult process, but you can only do it if you're thrown in at the deep end, if you, if you start to negotiate things for yourself, if you do that with your peers in social groups, you start to understand who you are, how you relate to people, what's important, what's not important. And they've been deprived of that opportunity because lots of those kids have been kept at home for almost a year now. So I think they're losing out on an enormous amount. And again, one of the problems I think is the question of resources and, um, you know, people with lots of kids in small houses or cramped houses with one computer, their children are not getting any education at all. Uh, it's just impossible. How, how is it possible? Uh, you know, my sister-in-law, for example, she has um, four children, all of them quite young, all of them now at home. Uh, they have two computers, which is not enough. Um, she has to look after them all day, as well as making sure they're in front of their computers uh, for school. Uh, they're distracted. Um, they're not focused. It, it, it just doesn't work. And yeah. it's impossible. And so I think one of the worst things that we did was, was rush to close schools. And I'm not saying that schools were 100% safe, because of course, the problem was that while children don't suffer badly from COVID-19, they are capable of spreading it to adults. So there was an issue. But a society that was seriously devoted to the education of children would have found a way. It would have found a way of educating kids um, outdoors, even in the cold weather. That's happened in some parts of the world. It would have found a way to educate them in large open spaces where they were distanced from each other. There's, there's ways you can do this. You know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the great storm of 1987. And one of the consequences of the great storm of 1987 is that half of my school got blown down because I went to a school, that large parts of it were wooden huts, essentially. Oh, yeah. hmm. And uh, all these trees fell on top of the wooden huts. So for, for at least three or four weeks, we didn't have a classroom to go to. So we all went into this huge hall. Um, we had classes in there. We were looked after in there. And I keep thinking of that. I keep thinking they found a way to make sure we were still educated and they did it in a large hall which would probably be quite safe even in the era of COVID-19. So the failure to find a way, the failure to seriously devote resources to having face-to-face -face education for children, that's the thing that worries me most because it suggests we don't actually take children's education or their socialization as seriously as we thought we did. Well, I think that's clear in the fact that so many parents let their kids on TikTok, to be quite <laughs> honest. I think that tells me all I need to know about where we are. Incidentally, I was on a ferry on the English Channel during, wow. during that storm. Oh my God, I've never been so sick in my entire that's life. <laughs> it was really bad. Uh, anyway, uh, you're not on TikTok though, Brendan. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm on Instagram. 
that's the only thing I do really. Well, maybe you should go and preach free speech to children on TikTok. (laughs) Personally, I hope the whole thing closes down. I can't imagine a worse environment for young minds. I mean, one of the other things I think that's devastating for kids during this sort of online learning is A, they're staring at a screen and we all want them off screens, but they're staring at a screen all day. So my children now, an hour lesson is an hour, as opposed to 45 minutes of disruptions and register and settling. It's a solid hour of staring at a screen. But also, I can't imagine being a teenage girl wanting to do a PE lesson on Zoom, which is no. what, which is, well, I, I obviously have stepped in, but that is what's happening with some teenage girls. I just think, come on, come on now, it's, please. No, the whole thing is ridiculous. Um, I was visiting my brother um, recently and his nephew his son my nephew was doing a PE class on zoom because his class was um, out of school at the this was before the current lockdown his class had been sent home because one of the kids had been found to be um, infected with the virus and my nephew who's um, 11 was doing a, a PE class on zoom I've never seen anything more hilarious in my life it was so pointless and served no purpose at all whereas I think physical education is a really important thing in a kid's life makes them a bit brave makes them robust forces them to negotiate as a team all those things that are so important in physical education are completely lost when you do it over zoom it makes no sense at all it's like in the 80s when people used to watch Mad Lizzie on TVM and, and do star jumps in front of the TV, or Joe Wicks, I guess, would be the modern version of that. It's it's just doing star jumps in front of the TV, which is fine if you're a 38-year-old who wants to get fit, but it's not good if you're a kid who ought to be doing these things with other kids. So everything about Zoom education, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't work you can't guarantee kids are concentrating you can't guarantee they're learning many many kids just don't turn up because they don't have the equipment so we have to be honest education for the first time in the modern era children in this country are not being educated yeah and i think future generations will be really shocked about that mm. i i am um, i was coming down the stairs and we ha- we got we were having some work done to the house and i could hear Uh, like this and uh, my son was doing a plank on zoom (laughs) it was absolutely brilliant I mean that comedy value brilliant education wise (laughs) not so great but I realize I've kept you um, a really long time and it's been so lovely to talk to you and uh, I'm sorry that you're right (laughs) (laughs) what can I try to be wrong next time (laughs) all right well thank you very much Brendan Thank you. Always a pleasure. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you did too. And thank you again to Brendan O'Neill for joining me for a second time on the podcast. Um, It's no secret that the fight against uh, reality is well-funded and well-connected and gaining ground all the time. The only way we're going to stop this is to fight back against it. And unfortunately, people, that means funding. So if you want to help fund the fight back uh, in the way that I do it, uh, Standing for Women has a membership that you can join. It's either monthly or one-off donations. I also have a Patreon account. I also have PayPal. And I have the most iconic merchandise of 
any campaign, as far as I'm concerned, uh, online uh, that I can remember in living memory. Uh, there's not many campaigns that offer you iconic status just by wearing our attire. So, uh, you know, like, share and subscribe. But if you're serious about participating in the fight back against this nonsense, I'm afraid it's going to take your money. So please feel free to part with that any way you see fit. And I promise that what I will do with it is make a difference. Anyway, thank you very much. Bye.